All right. Welcome to everyone listening or watching to the second installment of my conversation with Dave Collins. Um, we're going to be doing something a little differently than we had planned uh, as current ev events uh, dictate. Today is February 24th, 2022, and Russia has launched a pretty full-scale invasion of, of Ukraine, and it's uncertain at the moment the extent to which uh, the, the, the ramifications that will have for, for Russia, for Ukraine, for the world. There's a lot of uncertainty and fear, perhaps even some despair and uh, great worry for the suffering of everyone involved. That's what I feel anyway. So um, what uh, Dave and I, I think we'd, we'd like to do is talk um, a little bit about how contemplative practice and contemplative experience, um, how that relates, intersects with social um, and political engagement as well as when social and political forces intervene in one's life in uh, disruptive or disastrous ways, what kind of support uh, those practices and experiences can provide for, for, uh, for us human beings in, in times of trouble. Does that sound good, Dave? It, it does. And a first thing that comes to mind um, is I'm, I'm rather heartbroken by the events today. And uh, others may have used this, but I'm remembering uh, Stephen Levine, uh, Vipassana-oriented uh, American Buddhist. I think he recently passed, um, did work in uh, hospice and, and grief counseling. And what I'm remembering is his suggestion that we can understand and engage with um, the perspective that when our hearts are breaking, they're breaking open. So that sense of being all the more present, all the more human, all the more grounded. A lot of meditation is associated with chilling out. Um, but of course, uh, many traditions will, um, welcome the reminder that, uh, really getting in touch with being is, um, to cultivate an intimacy with, with worth and value and beauty and love. Um, a, rather uh, direct symbolization of that is the uh, yabhyam image in uh, Mahayana, especially Tantra, um, sexual union. And there can be somewhat different applications, but uh, the sort of fundamental understanding is that she represents uh, wisdom. Prajnaparamita happens to be grammatically feminine in Sanskrit. And that's her. The feminine, the female represents wisdom, wisdom into being, wisdom into the nature of life, 
And he represents compassionate action, skillful means. So she's insight, presence, clarity. He's love and embodiment and caretaking, compassion. And you can get a little on the theoretical side, but it seems to make eminent sense to me. The suggestions that they're twinned, they're together. And by constitution, we may be more oriented toward wisdom practices or more towards um, uh, devotion and compassion uh, service practices. But at their healthy foundation, each supports and uh, ultimately is not a different thing from from the other. So um, saying that, um, it can get kind of symbolic, it can get kind of wordy, um, but it's about a practice and it's about an experience. And yeah, I, I welcome your invitation to reflect on how heartbreaking events personally and globally uh, are to be engaged or, or can be um, entered into with contemplative perspectives and contemplative meditative practices. I'm, what comes up for you in that regard? I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, at least within the Buddhist tradition, the, the kind of central axis on which, you know, practice begins and practice is concerned with the, the first noble truth that of, right. of suffering, unsatisfactoriness of, of dukkha. Um, that I know for, for myself and for many others, what, what brings us to practice isn't, uh, a, a fascination, uh, with these, the, with these things for their own sake, although there may also be that. Um, but because, because life is difficult, because, uh, there is suffering. We experience it ourselves. We see it in others and we're looking for, for tools, for practices, uh, for help. Um, and the desire to practice uh, is almost a, a stirring of compassion uh, right. and wisdom just there right. in the recognition of right. of suffering, of one's own suffering, of others' suffering. And that wisdom, yeah. that compassion is seeking out a means uh, to help to help oneself and possibly to help others. I'm uh, trained as a psychotherapist and it can raise an eyebrow with this suggestion, but it makes eminent sense to me. Many kinds of psychotherapy and different models and psychological personality theories. But I think it's utterly fair to understand psychotherapy as a form of meditation where typically embodied in two people say, um, you're looking to have a open hearted, open eyed presence, which Especially I'm kind of humanistic oriented. And for me, the, the humanistic approach in my own words can be summarized as sort of if you want to help somebody change, love them the way they are. That sort of, uh, positive regard, that sort of acceptance, that sort of just kind engagement and presence. 
Um, and uh, uh, I know you're aware, sometimes just with ourselves, just sitting, we become, again, this is my language, we become a safe enough place for whatever healing we're ready for to come up and out, to come up and have us. Um, folks have done intensive meditation. Folks have done extended retreats. This isn't any uh, uh, new information, but sometimes it's a little surprise to folks who haven't. I'm in silent meditation, and I'm typically one of these folks who, uh, you know, 30, 40 people in a room just sitting looking at a wall. Three, four days into it, a third of us are crying. <laughs> Just sitting there. And, uh, again, I don't have, and I don't feel particularly a need to have a real fast, uh, articulated theory for it. But it does seem to me an exercise in a kind of naturalness that when we're less distracted, when we're less scattered, when we're less engaged in politics or philosophy or argumentation when we're sitting on our butt, touching the earth, allowing ourselves to be touched by what's matter-of-factly true. It's healing. It's loving. It's a matter, again, these are all metaphors, but it's a matter as much of the heart as it is of, of the mind or brain. Uh, just a, a comment there. It's it's interesting to note, as I'm sure you know, that in uh, in Pali, in Sanskrit, and in the East Asian translations of these Buddhist terms, the, the citta or the the mind, like what's usually rendered as either the heart or the mind, or the heart mind in English, those are two different words. Uh, the the emotions and cognition uh, are, are recognized, and in fact, science now um, has has pretty. Uh, it's kind of a open and shut the case here. Uh, they are, they are not at all separate. Right. And in East Asia, um, Shin, the character uh, in Chinese and uh, Japanese, similarly means heart and mind. And so a lot of the Zen uh, adages I'm fond of recalling, where they use the word mind, it is also the word heart. So a tradition of direct pointing to the heart. Yeah, that sounds uh, a little less forbidding than direct pointing at the human <laughs> mind. The human heart. Oh, that sounds that sounds warm, inviting. Indeed. Indeed <laughs> it is. <laughs> and another um trope or kind of stereotype sometimes of meditative traditions or meditative practice is that it's um individual, especially Western presumptions um that it's uh uh socially isolated or withdrawn from the world and on a day like today i'm reminded of how very much um contemplative practice meditative touching our hearts and our lives is of a piece with social action with political engagement with letting those around us and letting those in the world be reminded of 
there being a more wholesome, productive way. A icon, of course, of that is um, the work of Mahatma Gandhi and his uh, Satyagraha, which was uh, was translates, I think, etymologically as sort of grasping, holding the truth. Graha related to our grasp. Satya, I'm pretty sure, related also to the Sanskrit sat, just the being, the truth of being. Um, to hold to what is most wholesome, most real, is ultimately a political act. Martin Luther King Jr., of course, was informed by Gandhi's outlook and uh, translated into his own Christian social practice. Thich Nhat Hanh and engaged Buddhism. I don't know his work real well, his story, but if I remember correctly, you know, with the horrors of the Vietnam War, he just knew he couldn't stay in a monastery. The kind of worth and wonder he was cultivating as a monk was something to be shared and embodied and engaged socially. The Berrigan brothers, um, death row workers, um, very much informed by a type of spirituality which is all about being lived. This 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 strikes a chord uh, because when I started out um, seeking, when I started out looking for traditions to enter into, um, teachers to learn from, uh, I, I kind of made a, a and a relatively ignorant survey of the, the Buddhist traditions on offer that seemed uh, workable for me to enter into um, because at the time I was intending on uh, ordaining as one variety or another of, of monk. And it was Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, engaged form of Buddhism that, that really struck a chord um, because for myself, I, I didn't see any difference between um, taking care of oneself and taking care uh, of the world. In fact, taking care of one's own suffering so that one can be of service to the world. That seemed uh, of a piece, and that was explicitly laid out there um, directly with engagement in uh, not necessarily taking partisan sides in political conflict, but understanding that spiritual work is not separate from uh, all of human life. And I'm reminded, again, playing with etymologies, um, I I think this is accurate, that the words um, ordained and Ordinary <laughs> are cognate. They're related. And I always like that with kind of the image of the Buddha touching the earth. Just what's most real? What's in its way healthy in the sense of most ordinary is also what's most precious, what's most beautiful, what's most sacred. The phrase yes, I see you use often is "what's always already here," "what's what's always already true," yeah. Um, and indeed, that is that is something that's most ordinary. It's the most ordinary thing. Yeah. Very difficult to see. Very difficult to notice. Um, but uh, but not anything. Not anything uh, extraordinary. Except perhaps in the sense of um, the comedian uh, Stephen Wright. The absurdist fellow, when asked uh, what his uh, shirt size was, he said it's uh, extra medium. <laughs> extra, <Extremely> sure. 
<laughs> so extraordinary even, in that right. sense of being all the more the way things are. Right, right. Uh, hmm. We're at a point uh, with things in the in the geopolitical situation where, you know, I. With, with, if, if, if you're someone like me, you know, of, of not much, not much influence, uh, in the, in the wider world, um, you know, we're, we're not in contact with secretaries of defense. Uh, we don't have large sums of money that we can donate to worthy causes. Um, I guess this is, this is where I've had this question myself. It's, it's a, it's a live question. You know, these are things that deeply stir, uh, my my emotions, my my they they engage my capacity to respond, and yet there isn't a an immediate action that can be taken, and so I turn to practice for myself uh, to both you know make sure that I'm not overwhelmed so that I continue to be available to the wow. people around me, um, wow. even though I I can't directly respond to the you know the the, the greater suffering just. That wasn't really a question, but I wonder if you have any response to that. I do, because uh, it immediately reminds me of um, how much healthy social engagement and whether it's the people in our house or the political structures that we inhabit, how much healthy engagement is a matter of doing what your heart says do. And if we're going to embody our heart we kind of sort of, it behooves us, it benefits us, and it benefits the world to have some intimacy with our hearts. So um, I was uh, in another meeting today where reference was made to um, the political act of sitting meditation across the street from the governor's mansion, this happened to be in Texas, um, at the time of uh, a prisoner's execution, just showing up. Now, there are, of course, much more active um, possibilities, too. But that already, in a a kind of sort of uh, literal way, meditating as a political act just being present just witnessing something our heart tells us it's not okay it's not how our world should be it's not how human beings should comport themselves should act just sitting meditation across the street from the governor's mansion when someone's being executed in a prison Just that, that fact of, of being present, or not that fact, that, that act, that practice of being, of being present and of becoming intimate with, uh, with the 10,000 things. I like that way that, 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 that phrase that Dogen uses. That's quite, that's quite radical. Um, it, it seems to me, uh, that most problems interpersonally, uh, politically, you know, you could, you could, you could continue all the problems, um, or, or most of the ones that anything can be done about um, come about through the, the human mind's right. tendency to fabricate, to conceptualize, 
to to step away from yeah from that intimacy yeah and you know that that seems a rather you know that might be trite or, or precious in the kind of unelaborated way I've said it there but I really do I really do something think that something like that is true yeah that that comes through that, that comes through to me at least in in, in what you're saying um ten thousand was um the biggest number for which uh the Chinese language character system had a single character. Um and so the Chinese and then of course the, the Japanese like Dogen following on would use that one character as a gesture towards everything. The ten thousand things. But it still has a little bit of that concrete quality because you're not just saying infinite infinity or everything, but um your comment also reminds me um how in Dogen uh Genjo Kowan, his essay, and this is a paraphrase, um, suggests that when we bring ourselves to bear on the things of the world, there's delusion. When we allow the things of the world to bring themselves to bear on us, there's awakening. And so with this conversation, I'm again reminded of the spirit of that, of being present, being available to what's always already here before we have a philosophy about it, before we have a conceptualization of it, what our hearts, what our bodies already know, if and when we give them a chance, if and when we get, often it's quiet, but doesn't have to be quiet. <laughs> I was in another conversation today where, um, um, you know, of course, another um, rich uh, contemplative, spiritual uh uh engaged tradition is the, the the sufi current in in islam um and how uh the story has it that, that rumi there were sufis before rumi but he sets up an order the mevlevi dervishes um story has it um uh, well he in effect fell in love with with a spiritual teacher and the sense I always get at Shams at Debris, the image I have of them when they see each other, they're like two mirrors that you put in front of each other and just cascades of insights and associations and uh, beauty. So he meets Shams and poetry starts flowing out of him for the rest of the life, life. Tens of thousands of lines of poetry. But the story has it that he's, um, He's praying or he's, he's, he's doing a little chant and he's walking, doing a walking meditation effectively. And, uh, he's in a, a, a mosque and reaches out his hand and touches a pillar and spins around it. And the world cracked open. And so he inaugurated, uh, that kind of meditation, a, a dance, a, the turning, the whirling dervishes. Um, and of course the Sufis were, were married. The Sufis, Sufis had jobs. Um, so very much a model. I'm looking to combine this artistic, this poet, this dancer who had kids and, uh, poetry's flowing out of him. So again, just the, the, the motif of, of an embodiment and an engagement. 
that's simultaneously ordinary and uh, infused with 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 beauty and the movement of our our hearts yeah that's that's just so lovely um kind of there there are throughout different contemplative traditions kind of different models of the ideal spiritual practitioner some are more renunciant uh some are more engaged uh more towards a kind of ordinariness um but i think something something that they they share an element common to both is and this is you know both in theory and in practice that if you get in contact with that whatever word or or or, or metaphor that tradition chooses to use for it the, the pre-reflective openness in experience um if you get in contact with it that has an effect on on the human heart, on the human person, yeah. on on the on the personality, on the activity, which tends to be caring, which tends to be loving. And I'm also reminded uh, uh, I had the good fortune to to visit Konya, Turkey, um, some years back, and to witness the dervish ceremony. In the decades since, they've been able to leave and go around the world. Um, so lots of people have seen the, the dervish ceremony. Um, those days are a little more politically restricted. I won't go into that. But your comment reminds me, I'm at the ceremony with a lot of other people. Um, and it's on a basketball court. But when they started to turn and the music is playing, it was transformative it was like being in a a mixing traditions here but a a a buddha land um a heaven um and on the one hand it was altered for me and on the other hand the alteration i want to say was towards being all the more ordinary the beauty that's already possible to us they're dancing. They're just men, human beings, dancing with music playing. And somehow being that intimate to their experience, being that out from under their uh, mere thoughts and opinions, being that enlivened was, was transformative. The, the words have stopped. They'll come back right. shortly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll start singing or something. Uh. <laughs> okay, I, re- I remember where the where the train of thought was before it disappeared. Uh, this this kind of um, breaking down the distinction between the the sacred and the mundane—that's one way of putting it—or the imminent and the transcendent. It's a major theme, and I think it has a lot to do with um, disabusing ourselves of this uh, distinction or separation between our activity in the world as fully human and our activity as uh, spiritual practitioners um, getting beyond the human. That's one way you could say it. 
right. I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, during my time in, in Plum Village in France, uh, one of the methods of training was to uh, repeat gathas, uh, short little verses, um, to remind yourself to be mindful as you go about your activities. And my favorites were those that had to do with uh, brushing your teeth or uh, using the bathroom uh, or sweeping the floor that uh, you're meant to be practicing exactly as diligently, perhaps even more so um, as you're, as you're going about the routine activities of your life in the monastery or outside of it in, uh, in the courtroom, in, in a political uh, arena, all the more. So you need that kind of, that kind of openness, that kind of, uh, that kind of wise caring that can come about as a result of practice. Right. May have used this story in our previous conversation. Um, uh, One of the uh, mythic legendary tales included in the uh, Zen Koan collections, the the Buddha has just given a, a Dharma talk and a bunch of people get awakened and it's a lovely, wonderful the event and, and, and somebody wants to commemorate what has happened here and what's been shared. And so we should build a temple. And the god Indra that's there, the archangel Indra plants a blade of grass in the ground and says, the temple's built. <laughs> it can make all the sense in the world for us to set aside special places special techniques, special times, holy days, holidays, to remind us that it's all holy. Having a special time to to be reconnected in such a way that everything is a joy and a wonder and a privilege to be a part of. It... uh... I'm, I'm reminded of um, in an interview with a with a Zen master. I'll I'll perhaps link it in the show notes. I, I can't actually remember who it is, but it's a you know a, a wrinkled, uh, wizened Zen master being interviewed, and he says at one point the the point of Zen really is to become as one was uh, as a little child. In in open awe, fascination, and intimacy with one's own experience with others. Uh, with the world and to act from that place. And uh, it's not, you know, some traditions would have that uh, if you, if you come from that place of, of radical openness and intimacy, then you can do no wrong. I'm not sure I would go that far, but right. uh, you're probably going to be more aware of what you're doing. That's right. And what you're doing that's wrong and more sensitive to feedback. That's the hope anyway. Right. I'm also reminded um, uh, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's um, suggestion, and you can put different things in the in the in the blank here. Take good care of your anger. Take good care of your sadness. The image he also used was to put your arm around your difficulty as a way both to contain it, not have it determine our behaviors, not have us act out from that difficulty or that hurt or that anger, 
Put your arm around your anger. Take good care of your anger. Also the way to look into it. To have a relationship with it. What is this about? Not to get too uh, uh, soapboxy. <laughs> but with that little image, I'm reminded of how far contemporary Western psychology has to go to catch up with the world's contemplatives, the kind of healing wisdom that's always been a part of, of the, the wisdom traditions, the spiritual practice traditions, the contemplative currents in what we tend to call religious cultures, societies. Yeah, I, I've had, uh, unfortunately, a lot of contact with the psychiatric, psychological uh, modalities and establishments. And for where I was in my life at the time, I was, I was a little too far gone to be helped by cognitive behavioral therapy or uh, regular talk therapy. Uh, it's pretty, pretty immersed in a, in a thorough depression for a long, long time. Uh, and you know, I kind of got my way out through embodiment, actually, primarily. Okay. Embodiment uh, and really uh, coming coming back to life, so to speak, uh, through right. the body, not not through not through language, not through words, not through my concepts, because that, that that was my prison, more or less. So I invite you to the extent that you're uh, so inclined to to say more in that regard. It immediately reminds me of one. There's different levels there can be different styles of of depression you know manic depression has got a pretty heavy genetic load for a lot of people and biochemical uh, to all to just be a, a kind of sadness that gets involutional gets turned inward and and doesn't process as a natural grief um and so you know n- n- not one size fits all kind of uh a recommendation, but I'm reminded of how often as a therapist, I've invited folks who are feeling depression to act as if they're not. For some people, getting out and doing things they wouldn't ordinarily, no, doing things they would ordinarily do if they weren't depressed can be helpful. Things like exercise, walking by the lake, riding a bicycle. And for you, there was a, a, a somatic and embodied, uh, 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 engaged sort of activity that was healing. Yeah, absolutely. More, more so than anything else, I think. Um, uh, my, my depression lasted pretty much throughout my, my adolescence and it wasn't, um, it wasn't manic depression. Um, it was, uh, being, being trapped in a, in a cage of my, my thoughts, my feelings. And in a mutually reinforcing cycle um, of social isolation and kind of just thinking, 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 more thinking, feeling bad, thinking about how I'm feeling bad, talking about how I'm feeling bad with other people and then thinking more and, you know, taking it all in uh, as something that was uh, deeply wrong with me and that I was somehow responsible for uh, as, as one is wont to do, you know, as, as a, as an adolescent without really a clear understanding of, of, of many things. <laughs> and perhaps with a sense that this is forever. Exactly. Exactly. 
it's uh, it's bad now. It's uh, it's getting worse, in fact, and it will it will never improve. Um, and and it was it was it was really really quite terrible. Um, not not yeah. to mince words. Uh, yeah, depression is pain. But uh, what what helped? Um, there were two kind of pivotal things, I would say. One, uh, I, I had the privilege to partake in the program Outward Bound. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yes, yes. Uh, so that uh, that for me took the form of uh, three or more weeks. I think it was about 20, 28 days uh, just out canoeing for hours and hours every day uh, with no books, no no entertainment, uh, except for the company of other people. Um, and you know, one's immediate environment, uh, taking, taking whatever each day had, uh, and getting through it. Um, and through that, uh, this was when I was about 14, I kind of, during that period kind of really came back to a sense of health and well-being. Unfortunately, after that coming back home, kind of resubmerged into patterns and behaviors and um, that, that kind of got me uh, down even even deeper than I was before and what it took again in the end was uh, don't know if you're if you're familiar um, probably are here you're in the field there's uh, wilderness therapy um, so again it was it was kind of a long very long uh, hiking trips um, oh. With, oh. with group and individual therapy as well. Although again, I would say <laughs> for me, at least I'm sure this isn't everybody's experience, but it was actually just uh, a break from old habits, uh, old environments uh, that triggered thoughts, triggered feelings and right. immersion in an essentially healthy way of being with oneself and with others uh, physically engaged that kind of got me back to a place of, of health and of, I wasn't, I wasn't happy, but I was, <laughs> I was, I was not, uh, not dysfunctionally depressed. And from there I turned to, uh, to contemplative practice. I've had times of, uh, of depression and on, uh, intensive retreats stuff comes up. Um, but with your story, I'm reminded, uh, I've mostly practiced uh, the Vipassana and, uh, Soto Zen through San Francisco Zen Center style, American Soto, but did a couple of Rinzai Zen retreats where they use koans, um, these kind of, uh, uh, provocations, these, these little stories or puzzles, um, that help us, uh, frustrate <laughs> the mind and allow the chance that something more fundamental can up and out. And in my case, I'm reminded um, through some of what you shared. I was given the koan. I forget exactly how it goes, but um, a man is blind and he is deaf. How are you going to teach him the Dharma? And I was in a lot of physical pain at the time, got full-on depression type feelings, and started somehow opening up to the natural beauty of the place, the the life of the place, the animals of the place. And I told my teacher eventually, this blind and deaf person 
How are you going to teach him the Dharma? How are you going to transform him? How are you going to help him away? So I get him a dog. <laughs> Something alive and, and loving and natural. Um, bit of an extension, but that's what comes up for me in reflecting on what, what, what you just shared. Getting back to the woods. Getting back to something that moves. Getting back to our uh, animal, soft-bodied person. It's uh, it's also interesting that different traditions have different uh, degrees of involvement and place different importance on realizing practice through the body. In Zen, yeah. it's quite important. In uh, in Tantra, it's very important. Sounds like in Sufism, it's it's quite important. Um, Although interestingly, and this is something I've seen acknowledged more and more in the kind of uh, mindfulness that has been imported and uh, mass marketed, um, it it can often be quite disconnected from the body. uh, Some in in some of the ways that it's taught, Uh, and I suppose I suppose that just leaves that just leaves room. You know, for a fuller, um, a fuller understanding, a fuller publicization of the range of practices and perspectives uh, that have informed and enriched uh, and improved people's lives over all of human history. There's a there's a, a vast a vast array of which only a small part gets popularized, which is unfortunate. So much work to be done. And I'm very fond, um, if not in fact insistent on asking of spiritual teachings, and there's lots of kinds and lots of styles, but of asking of, of spiritual teachings, religious concepts, not as this true or false, right or wrong, not if I believe it at all, but how does this work? What is the healthy potential here? And does it work for me? So I'm reminded um, in what you've said, how much uh, ascetic practices there are through human history and often associated with, with, of course, spiritual traditions and dualistic models. Like I've been reading some Plato and I've got a long ways to go to really understand what that guy was up to. But among the things I'm seeing is he's telling stories. He's having people talk to one another and he'll contradict himself from one dialogue to the next but the sort of dualism that gets associated with Plato between you know sort of discarding or discounting or even denigrating the body and and giving priority and value and and esteem to the soul the psyche or or some um, idea that is not corporeal or scattered into multiple uh embodiments um that can be a story (laughs) a practice model inviting us not to get distracted by the mm, by our uh notions and and to recollect to remember (laughs) to collect again, to embody again, 
um, something more original than our thought up ideas to play with Plato's language, to look for the idea behind the idea, the, uh, the, the living truth before the mere opinions. And perhaps even whatever identity remains beneath or uh, within the absence of our, our, usually, our usual sense of ourselves and uh, our, our notions and how intertwined those are. And uh, on that note, I think I'd like to circle back. I remember at the beginning of our conversation, you had an intention. Um, I think we've, we've covered briefly, um, but well, I think in the short time we have uh, a number of things, but uh, the ultimate lack of distinction between uh, the sacred, the mundane, the, the political, the spiritual. We've, we've touched it lightly, a little on those. And I'm wondering if we could spend some time uh, moving into the, the, the last section of our conversation together um, on just what, just what, especially if someone uh, doesn't already have a, uh, a deep practice, something that is easy, accessible, and very sustaining. Um, what, 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 what's kind of possible for a person in confronting Confronting is probably not the word. In, in taking care of one's sadness, taking care of one's fear, especially in, in times such as these, when there's war, there is great uncertainty uh, in all areas of life. I hadn't quite thought of this this way before. Um, and it's a little um, um, made up on my part. But um, of the, the, the Buddhist centrality of, um, of uh, transience, of impermanence, of things changing. Um, uh, Suzuki Roshi, founder of uh, San Francisco Zen Center, once said that all the Buddhist teaching on uh, impermanence can be summarized in two words, not always so. And I'm reminded in context of this conversation, um, um, I, I'm feeling uh, drawn to to make a comment on on, on suicidality. That's a forever thing, um, and it is not uncommon with depression to have thoughts of whether this is worth it, whether I can go on, and of course to have uh, plans or uh, even attempts. Um, again, a kind of uh, reflection of how awfully painful and 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 hopeless it can feel sometimes when depression has us and how while it's also true statistically people who do attempt suicide not uncommonly have had attempts at other times in their life but it's also true and this is the point i really want to underscore people who get on the other side of a suicide attempt or a period of feeling suicidal three, four months later are typically really glad they didn't do it. Depression messes with our faults. Depression stains the way we see the world. And it can be tragically hard to remember 
But if we've got friends, if we've got some, maybe ourselves, something we journaled, a note to ourselves, befriending ourselves, this isn't forever. These things change. And again, um, when the cloud lifts, people who have had suicidal times are typically really glad they didn't. They see things different. They feel things different. I, I can I can personally attest throughout much of, of my time depressed. I, I, I was struggled with pretty persistent, intrusive, suicidal thoughts. I uh, fortunately never made any uh, serious attempts, but it was, it was always in the back of my mind lurking like a, uh, an unhealthy and bothersome friend that just won't stop pestering you. Uh, and I can, I can gladly say that I am very glad that the, they remained they remained thoughts and inclinations, um, never, never escalated. I, uh, I want as well to say something on your phrase, uh, uh, depression kind of stains the, the way that we see the world. I think in, uh, in one sense, that's kind of what, what a lot of contemplative practice comes down to is in ways of seeing the world. I don't know if you're, you're familiar with, um, the late, uh, Rob Berbea's work. Uh, oh, Barbea, yes, a little bit. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful teacher. Really, really great. And, uh, and tragically lost too soon, um, to cancer. But that's a central theme in, in his work, uh, in understanding different, different ways of taking up with the world, different insight, insightful ways of looking that invite different ways of seeing the world. Um, and, it's been my experience retrospectively um, that depression is a kind of, it's right. a, I want to say right. disordered, but I don't mean that in a, in a way to condemn the, the, the experience. Um, it's a, it, right. It's a, it, it puts a pall over the entirety of, of your perception of your, of yourself, of your emotions, of your thoughts, like a, like a gray fog or a cloud uh, has infected even your experience of external sight, external sound. Um, and uh, perhaps in times like these, uh, those, those, those clouds come rolling back in for people, or if they haven't had them before, they, they may begin to experience them. And uh, just as you've said, uh, all things are transient. Uh, and, no- and noticing that can make a great deal of difference in the moment. And as you open the uh, discussion with um, the uh, Buddhist appreciation of uh, the unsatisfactoriness of our habitual engagement with ourselves and one another in the world, that unsatisfactoriness, the dukkha also translated very commonly as the suffering that uh, stains our habitual way of being in the world. I'm reminded with what you just uh, 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 alluded to. Um, suffering is a kind of evaluative, uh, has an evaluative component to it and is ultimately, as the whole Buddhist tradition is about informing us, is suffering is ultimately an option. It's not required. Pain is not so optional. (laughs) 
But if and when we can stay close to our breaking hearts as something that is uh, a movement of our life, our life force, how pain is, 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 is uh, something vital, is something living, is a reminder of the, uh, uh, well, in my case, the reminder that I don't know everything and, uh, to be only a little, uh, coy, what a privilege it is not to know everything. <laughs> to be thrown into this wonderful, mysterious, uh, miraculous story. I alluded to last time how sometimes, um, I've had the experience of meditating in my sleep. What on earth is going on there? And it helps me appreciate one, again, I don't know everything. Two, it's an utter wonder, this event. Sleep is something our bodies, again, speaking slightly metaphorically, something our bodies know how to do. Dreams is something our hearts and minds and bodies get together and make a, make a, 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 a production for us, an entertaining processing of materials and experiences and being awake and having thoughts and language. That's a story. I have no idea how I'm doing this. <laughs> and, and the sort of stepping away from, um, the habit, the pro forma, the routine and stepping all the more into uh, the wonder of it. Um, <laughs> I was trying to think of what spiritual uh, image was coming to my mind. It's a, a moment in the uh, Talking Heads movie, uh, Stop Making Sense, where David Byrne looks at his hand and says, how do I work this? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's, there, there's, that's a, a lot of richness in what you just said. Um, something I'd, I'd like to touch on, maybe elaborate is that being free of suffering, uh, d- doesn't mean, uh, kind of dissociating from pain. Right. In, fa- in fact, uh, dissociating from pain, turning away from pain, physical or, or emotional, uh, tends to amplify it. In fact, Perhaps you can suppress it for a time, uh, but it uh, it solidifies, it puts down roots. Uh, and so being with one's pain, taking care of one's pain, that's, that's the way. A hard, hard learned lesson <laughs> for me anyway, I might be slow. I'm going to throw a little bit of a, another angle onto it. Um, in uh, uh, the uh, contemplative work um, alluded to in our last talk, a cloud of unknowing, a fellow, uh, probably Carthusian, didn't sign his name, 14th century, writing a book on how to meditate, how to do contemplative prayer. 
And he alludes to times when things get difficult, stuff comes up, how to work with it. And I'm going to back into his first suggestion by the first, the, the second suggestion is one we've kind of touched on in spirit, at least uh, uh, in this conversation. He says, uh, when you just can't let it go, take seriously the prospect that it's there for a reason and let it have you. In his language, uh, give yourself up to the divine in the hands of your enemies. Uh, give yourself up to God. Consider it folly to, to strive against this anymore. Let this have you. Take good keep of this slight, I pray thee. Pay good attention to this technique, I urge you. For methinks with the practice of it, you will melt all to water. Melt Some, all to water. Sometimes our stuff comes up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes our stuff comes up and sometimes our stuff is holding us until we pay some damn attention <laughs> to our lived experience. So that's a, kind of a theme, a sort of a spirit of much of what we've, we've, we've uh, looked at and explored, I feel, in this conversation. But I'm also reminded of another um, option, which I at least want to allude to. Um, the first technique, he says, is to ignore it. Look past it. Don't get into it. Don't allow this distraction. Look over its shoulder to what your actual intent is. Look towards the beauty. Look towards the divine. That's more fundamental than this distraction. Let it go. So he's given a balanced teaching. The second one is the, what I said before is you let it go and you let it go and you let it go and it doesn't let it go, let go. If you take seriously the prospect, this, there's something going on here and look into it, let it have you. Um, and this is a, potentially a, a, a silly uh, uh, analogy, but I think I'm right in, in, in remembering in the movie um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, Harrison Ford's character is at one point accosted by a scimitar-wielding bad guy. Um, and the script called for Harrison's character to disarm the bad guy with his bullwhip. So Indy has a whip and he's in the, the script. And, and Harrison tries to do it, and, and it doesn't work. And in the story, this point of the story, his, his love interest has been absconded and kidnapped and they're driving away and this guy's in his way. And he tries it again with the rope and it doesn't work. And the actor Harrison remembers his character has a 44 on his hip. And so when the whip didn't work and the whip didn't work in the next take, he just picks out his, his pistol and boom. And, uh, Spiegel says, print it. <laughs> it's a cartoonish association, but just as a reminder, in addition to sort of engaging with our life as it's presenting our material, our hurts, our pains, sometimes, well, I'm also reminded of a the story of, a, of a, a young Western woman who's in an ashram in India who keeps getting sexually harassed at the market. 
this there's some guy she's not from here so he can get away he thinks with being inappropriate and one day she just loses it and is cussing him out and has lost her temper she turns around and there's her teacher and she's embarrassed for being so emotional and angry and he says to her you know if it were i i think i would take my umbrella and with loving kindness hit him over the head This sense of, um, in addition to, you know, letting it happen sometimes, sometimes just taking, getting up and moving on. Just, again, kind of the motif of being materially engaged, being embodied, um, marshalling other, uh, uh, resources and, and strengths we might have, uh, getting up and going for a walk. Well, uh, as it is with so much of this, there isn't a, a pat and rote formula, which we can all right. use immediately with that, with wonderful results, but uh, a skillful balancing of, of turning towards what, what is difficult, engaging with it uh, on its own terms and, and turning away um, to, uh, to titrate, uh, right. Right. To, to regain strength, uh, or, or in some cases to genuinely transcend. The, uh, the object, right. which is right. so vexing us. Yeah. Um, and perhaps perhaps that's a good place to end. I think so. Feels good. All right. Well, may, may everyone be well, may everyone be safe, and may, may, may all conflicts everywhere cease as quickly as possible. Take care. That's my wish, anyway. Take care.